Good morning and welcome to Bible study at St. Paul's de Pere. And uh, welcome especially to our listening audience on KFUO. Today we're starting a new chapter, chapter 12. So, chapter 12. Now, chapter 12, there's a shift. Chapters 3 through 8 are a, a presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in many, many ways. Many angles. Paul explains it thoroughly. 9 to 12, which we just finished, is a section where uh, he explains how God's plan is to bring the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. But when we get to 12, something happens that happens in other letters of Paul. He switches from explanations of the gospel to the Christian life. He, he switches from justification to sanctification. And he explains the Christian life. Now, he does this in books like Ephesians, he does it in Colossians, uh, several of his books he does this. And here in Romans he does the same. His purpose is not to make people feel guilty. It is not that he's beating people up with the law. But he is coming at it from this point of view. Now that you know the gospel, what are the implications of this for everyday life? What, is the, what are the implications of this if you are a, a, a husband or a father or a child? Or, or what are the implications when you're a member of the body of Christ? What's the Christian life, moral, ethical? And so in chapter 12, the switch occurs. And so we start there. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. All right. A better way to translate it would be, a Greek word would be, I urge you. I urge you, therefore. And therefore is a, a, a switch, okay? That signifies a switch. Therefore means take everything I've set up to now, and therefore... This is the way it is. And of course, therefore, brothers, uh, by the mercies of God. Now, that's the critical phrase, by the mercies of God. The Christian life is not possible apart from the mercies of God. Chapters 3 through 8 explain the mercies of God. Forgiveness, reconciliation, justification, the gift of the Holy Spirit, baptism. All of those things are the mercies of God. We have those as Christians. And without those things, the Christian life is impossible. 
You see, there's no such thing as the Christian life without faith in Christ. That's where it starts. You can't decide to be a Christian and say, well, I'm going to lead a good life on your own. Won't happen. We need the mercies of God. We need the blessings of God. And we receive those through faith in Jesus Christ. God is the center of the Christian life. It's not like God saved us in Jesus Christ and now we're on our own to live the Christian life. We have to have Him. You know, what is our participation in the Christian life? I've told this story before. Luther likened it to a horse pulling a wagon up a hill. And on the back of the horse is a fly flapping its wings. The Holy Spirit's the horse. We're the fly. Okay? We help just a little. It's up to God. Without His strength, we can't lead the Christian life. So we read the, this section not as Paul laying out for us commands of the law that we better keep, but it's an exhortation to a new life, an exhortation to live according to God's Word. And so, by the mercies of God, we are to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Living sacrifice is an oxymoron. Because sacrifices are dead. There are no living sacrifices in the Old Testament when they killed all those animals and they shed their blood. Sacrifices are dead, but now God does a new thing, living sacrifice, a living sacrifice. And for this, we're going to regress a minute and go back to chapter 6. I want you to go back to chapter 6. And chapter 6 is on baptism. Now, we're, when we're talking about living sacrifice, we're, of course, talking about a new kind of life. And, of course, we're talking about life, not death. And so I want you to turn back to Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Okay? We were dead in trespasses and sins. Now through baptism, we are new. Okay? The old sinful nature is drowned and died, and we are new. 
But let's go a little farther. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now here we find what is the basis of this living sacrifice. We're no longer dead in trespasses and sins. We're alive. Because we have been united with Christ when we are united with Christ in baptism, the old sinful nature dies, and we are given life. So we are resurrected already through baptism. You sit there today as a living, a living sacrifice. And we'll talk about that some more. But again... We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Okay? And that's not just in heaven. That's now. It's every day. It's every day. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So... This establishes that we are alive. We are alive in Christ. Therefore, we are living sacrifices. We are living sacrifices. We live the newness of life, the living we go on living, we will not die, we will rise, and God gives us his life-giving spirit. Okay? So you're sitting here today alive as an heir of heaven, and nothing can change that except you if you reject Jesus Christ. But other than that, you are sitting there alive. Now notice as it says, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Holy here means pure, sanctified purified in Christ, and that's what you are, because all your sins have been washed away. When God looks at you, he sees his son and his perfect righteousness, not your sin. So as a living sacrifice, you're holy, 
you're acceptable to God, which is uh, basically just saying you're not unacceptable. Okay? You're not unacceptable. At which you were in sin. Okay? You are well-pleasing. Okay? That's what it means. Well-pleasing to God. Which is your spiritual worship. Now, we think of worship as you go to church and you sing hymns and you pray. The most important thing about worship is not what we do, it's what God does. It's the fact that He comes to us in worship. He comes and forgives our sins. He comes to us and speaks to us in His Word. He gives us His body and blood in the sacrament. The most important thing about worship is not us. It's Him coming to us. All right? It's back to by the mercies of God. We can't do anything without them. So the most important thing when you come to worship is that you hear the word and receive the sacrament. All right? That's the most important thing. The most important thing is not you singing and praying. That's our response to what God is doing for us. That's why we call it divine service. Not the human service. It's the divine service because God is coming to us. God is coming to us. And that has to be the emphasis in worship. If human beings become the center of worship, then we don't, if we focus on ourselves and not on God, we got a serious problem. Okay. Because we will not receive the forgiveness and life that He offers if we're constantly focused on ourselves. God comes to us. Now, what then is spiritual worship? Now, We'll, we'll get to the word spiritual, but worship. We're not talking about corporate worship in the church. We are talking about every single believer living in their vocation and what they do in faith is not only considered a good work, it is actually considered an act of worship to thank God for what He's done for us by His mercies. You live every day of your life, and it is an act of worship to God. Because when you are guided by the Holy Spirit, strengthened by the Holy Spirit, and do the things that God would have you do, it is an act of worship and thanksgiving to God for what He has done for you. And that is what a living sacrifice is. 
And it can be the smallest thing. Martin Luther says, the woman on her kitchen floor, scrubbing the floor so it's clean for her family, does a far greater work than all the monks and nuns in Germany, because that's her vocation. And she has faith in God, and she's doing it out of love for others. That is a living sacrifice, and that is an act of worship, thanking God. So don't think of just worship as coming to church on Sunday. It's your life. Your life is an act of worship to God. Everybody with me? Now, I want to get to the word spiritual because it doesn't say spiritual. (laughs) I hate to tell you, I hate to break your... What the Greek word means is reasonable. The only proper thing to do. So in other words, it would read like this. I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. It's the only thing that's appropriate for you to do after God's done so much for you. It's the proper thing to do. Because God has saved you. Okay, so you ask, well, God has saved me. What's the reasonable response? To live as a living sacrifice to God. That's the reasonable response. Okay? That's the reasonable response. So, it's all based on the mercies of God. Okay? We always go back to that no matter what. Now, the next verse, everybody's with me. He who hesitates is lost. Okay? All right. So, the next verse is one of the best known in the Bible. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. All right, for Bud, these are two present passive comparatives. That means they're a man, and and present means ongoing action. All right. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be about being conformed. It's a passive, being conformed to this world. Now, what it's saying is, don't let the pressures of this world conform you to the way the world is, okay? And we all know about trying to fight that, okay? Trying to fight that. Because there are constant pressures. We are constantly hearing things 
we are constantly seeing things that would seek to conform us to the way this world is, and this world is a world of sin, death, and Satan. So, he's saying, don't, it's ongoing resistance. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a one-time decision where you say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be conformed to the world, and you just make your decision go on, because it's constant. You're constantly being bombarded by things in this world through all kinds of avenues. Social media, which is of Satan, and uh, all the rest of it. But you're constantly being bombarded. So you have to actively resist this constant bombardment that is trying to get you to conform to the ways of the world. All right? Constantly. But then, okay, that's the negative. But be transformed. This is a Greek word that is directly related to English. The word is metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. Change. You know, you, you learned in science the metamorphosis cocoon and a butterfly. Okay, the metamorphosis. This is the word. It's metamorphosis. See, you know a Greek word. Metamorphosis. Now, there's another passage, let me read it to you. This is from 2 Corinthians, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." Now, we're being, now, it's also passive, which means we can't transform ourselves. God transforms us. We're being transformed. Okay? By what? By the Holy Spirit. And when does that take place? In baptism. We're back to chapter 6. When we are baptized, the old sinful nature is drowned and dies, and the new comes forth. That new is worked by the Holy Spirit. We are transformed by the Holy Spirit. Now, we're told then that that happens, okay? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The renewal of the mind can only take place by the mercy of God. Because the renewal of the mind, we can't change our thinking. We are born under sin. Okay? And our thinking is in that direction. To think the way God does takes God 
changing our minds. It is the exact opposite of what Paul talked about in chapter 1. And in that, the verse was telling us we have undiscerning minds. We can't discern the will of God. Undiscerning minds. What this passage is saying by the transformation, you can discern the will of God. Okay? The will of God. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. Okay? You can discern it. Now, let's talk about this, because it's not that easy. We are sinful people, and in the, even though we are saved by Jesus Christ and alive, that old sinful nature is still trying to rear its ugly head every day, time after time. As the saying goes, the old sinful nature is drowned and dies in baptism, but he's a real good swimmer. So we fight this battle all the time. Discerning the will of God, sometimes knowing very clearly what God wants us to do and what we shouldn't do, and that doesn't mean we're going to do it, <laughs> but we discern it. But here's the problem. There are certain situations in life that are not black and white. There are certain situations in life that even though we have the gift of the Holy Spirit and we're a believer in Jesus Christ, we have situations where we cannot discern what God wants. You ever had one of those? God, what do you want me to do? And we can't discern. It's too difficult for us. The Spirit guides us, but He doesn't force us to do anything. Our minds are not so thoroughly renewed that we know instinctively what God wants us to do in all situations. So when you're in one of those situations and you can't discern what God wants you to do, there's only one place to go back to his word, and if it's an ethical or moral decision, back to the law. Because we know the law is the perfect will of God. When we cannot discern what God would have us do, we need to go back to his word. Our renewed minds are not the final authority. Because then we can be a law unto ourselves. The ultimate authority is God's Word. And we have to go back to God's Word. Because we're not perfected yet. We will only be perfected in heaven. And we're not perfect yet. Yes, Steve.
We come to church for the distinct reason of hearing God's Word. God's Word is powerful, and it is God's Word that will not only instruct us, but it will empower us to live according to that Word. So it's not only instruction, but it's empowerment. The Holy Spirit comes to you through the Word, and you are empowered to go forth. And sometimes you're going to do what the Spirit wants you to do, and sometimes you're not. And you'll look back and say, I knew I should have done that. But you didn't. And that's common to all believers. The more we're in the Word, the better off we are. Okay? The better off... You know, people say, well, I don't need to go to church. I worship God in nature. Yeah, you can go to hell worshiping nature too. Because God's Word does not come to you in nature. The cross of Christ is not proclaimed to you in nature. The only thing proclaimed by nature is we have a powerful God who created all this. But he revealed to us in his word that we have salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That is not written on the tree. Okay? So... Um, we have to have the word in the sacrament. It goes back to the whole thing about um, vine and branches. The vine is Jesus Christ. The vine feeds us through word and sacrament. If we separate ourselves from Jesus Christ and word and sacrament, we will die. It's a very simple analogy. We will die. So what we're being told here is, discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Okay? And those words pretty much describe. Uh, good means it's good like the law. And perfect, God is perfect. Okay? We are seeking to be like Him. Acceptable, well-pleasing. All right. Verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. The actual word there is, don't set your mind high, or don't elevate your mind. And you elevate and think high when you think of yourself as better than others. You set yourself of a mindset that you are better than others. Now remember here, he is talking to Jews and Gentiles. 
as he talked about in chapter 9 through 11, there is no reason for the Jew to think he's better than the Gentile or the Gentile to think he's better than the Jew in spite of everything that happened. Because the only thing that makes any difference is the grace of God. And the grace of God was offered to them all. We should not think of ourselves as better than others. Because we are all under God's same judgment, which is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the only reason we are the way we are is by grace. By God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we don't want to be proud and haughty that we are better than others. We are not. Because everybody's sinful and everybody needs the grace of God. Okay? The grace of God. All right, let's go on. For as in one body, no, excuse me, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Okay, what is this talking about? This is not talking about that everybody here has a different level of faith. You can get yourself in big trouble by thinking as of faith as something you do. As soon as you start putting faith on a scale, you turn it into a work. Well, I'm saved by faith. Well, how much faith do you have to have to be saved? Well, on a scale of 1 to 10, you've got to get to 8. You've just turned faith into a work that you do. You either have faith or you don't. We believe what he's saying here, the faith as assigned is the faith that he gives to all believers. Okay? The assigned faith, the faith he gives to all believers. But don't put faith on some scale that you have to do this. If you say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. The other one that's very scary when you put on a scale is repentance. How repentant do I have to be? Okay. A Luther whipped himself. Don't put repentance on a scale. You've got to be sorry at number eight before it's good enough repentance. Repentance is an attitude. Do not... God works repentance in you. Do not turn faith and repentance into works that you do. God is working them. All right, verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. All right. I know most of you very well. You should be very afraid. <laughs> no. But many of you I know so well that I can go down the row and say what your gifts are. 
Because I've seen them. I've seen them. Everybody does not have the same function in this body of Christ. Everybody is different. Is different. Now, some of you may not be fully utilizing the gifts you have. And some of you are using lots of things. But no matter who you are and what you have as gifts from God, God needs you and has put you in this place for a reason. So I'm going to tell you a story, and some of you have heard it before, but I'm sure many of you haven't. When I was a pastor in Starkville, Mississippi, it was a small church we had on Sunday, about 50, 60 members there. We had one man that could play the organ. So one day I'm sitting in my office, and he shows up, and he said, Pastor, I've been transferred to another city. And immediately I had these horrible 50 people trying to sing the same hymn week after week, a cappella. So the next Sunday, I announced in church, Bob is leaving, being transferred. There was an audible, I said, if anybody can play the piano or the organ, see me soon. Well, I shook hands and everybody was gone. One lady stayed back in the, in the congregation. And, and so I said, Jean, what can I do for you? She said, Pastor, I know how to play the organ. I said, Jean, why haven't you said something? Because I didn't think you needed it. And she started playing the organ, and we were fine. Who put Jean in the congregation? God the Holy Spirit. Okay? Don't think, my friend, that you're not needed. God has put you here for a reason. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now notice what that is saying. You're not only a member of the body of Christ, we are all individually members one of another. We are all attached. We're not only part of the body, but to every other member. We belong to each other. Each member has a different function. And each member needs the other member because of their function. This is a statement of unity. Okay? Statement of unity. Now, the picture he's painting is, imagine if everybody is a living sacrifice to God, 
and everybody is joined together in Christ and to one another, this ought to work out pretty good. That's the way God wants it. And the thing that gets in our way is, of course, sin. Our own selfish desires and ways. But the picture that's being painted here is a picture of absolute unity. Elsewhere, Paul says, you can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Okay? Or you can't say to the ear, I don't need you. We all need each other. We all are united to one another. So then he says in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. There are different gifts. And what he's about to do is go through seven of those gifts. If you're reading ahead, do not try to discern what gift you have. Because I'm going to muddy the waters so bad next week that it won't do you any good. What we'll realize is they're all interrelated. So next week, we're going to go through those seven gifts. And there are some very unique Greek words here to describe those gifts, to describe what's going on in the midst of the people of God. And then the next section is marks of the Christian, and it's all based on what are those qualities of genuine love. So I don't want to start those seven gifts today. We need to do it as a unit. Okay. I know we only got through five verses this week, but I knew we would. I knew we wouldn't do any better. So we'll, we'll go through next week. We'll finish chapter 12 next week. All right, any questions? Yes. Yes. Yes, and, and pastors are here to help you, but just remember... They're using the word too, okay? It's not that we do it. It's the instrument we are using that does it. Another one over here? I do not know that. It, 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 yeah, I mean, I'll look at that and see if there's anything, but I, I, it, it, it doesn't say degree, okay? It says measure. Right. But again... Is that referring to just the faith that he gives every believer? Every believer. Not, uh, not different measures that this person believes more. Everybody believes. It's you that determines. Some days you feel really strong in your faith. The next day you feel like you have none. That's our feelings. If God gives you faith, you have faith. Okay. Again, don't try to measure it, okay, or put it on a scale. That's right. See, your faith does not get stronger when everything's going your way. Your faith gets stronger when you are tested. And Steve, God's been beating you up for years. So you got a strong faith, okay? That's right. 
All right. Yeah, Paul. Right. That's right. Uh, you baptize a baby, they're not instantly know all things. That's why we also ask the question to the parents. Will you bring up this child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Because from their baptism, they're going to need to grow in their faith. They're going to need to be in contact with the Word. They're going to be need to be in Sunday school and church. Baptism is not something you do and then say, well, I'm fixed. I don't have to do anything else. Okay. You grow in the faith from your baptism on. And it is the parental responsibility to help that child do that until they are older and begin to do that themselves. Okay. All right. We'll see you next week. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.